This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is good to be with you again, Chris, and Happy New Year, happy 2024. New Year, yeah. It's a, it's a Big week for, for the year. It's a big week for the Insecurities Podcast. By the time this comes out, Kurt, I think you'll also have gone around the sun one more time since, since oh. this time last year. You know, I think you weave in a birthday joke every single year. You have to you have to <laughs> point out that, birthday, I, that I'm an old man. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You know, as always, for our first episode of the year, we try to do an episode that's sort of peeking around the corner a little bit, thinking about some of the things that we expect to be talking about throughout the year ahead. And of course, this year, we expect to spend a lot of time again, again. <laughs> talking about crypto uh, and digital assets. Uh, in fact, we're only a few days into the new year, and we've already seen a raft of headlines on what to expect for digital assets in the year to come. For example, Fox Business ran an article digital asset markets poised to grow in 2024. Meanwhile, CNBC ran an article, United States acts as top cop, setting the crypto standards for the world. Forbes listed three reasons why stable coins will have a breakout year in 2024. And Forbes also pointed out that a BlackRock ETF leak triggers Bitcoin price surge past $45,000. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about Bitcoin ETFs later today. Uh, my, my favorite piece, though, was a quote from Eric Van Miltenberg, who's an SVP for Strategic Initiatives at Ripple, in FinTech Magazine's 2024 Look Ahead Crypto and Digital Assets. I think he sort of captures the moment and, and hopefully kind of the tone of today's episode. He said the following, quote, Since the onset of the so-called crypto winter, industry commentators have been debating whether this is the beginning of the end for the industry. But the demise of crypto and blockchain couldn't be further from reality. While we've seen regulators, primarily in the US, file charges against high-profile crypto companies this year, this actually helps players that are focused on driving utility and solving real-world problems to rise above the noise. As 2024 approaches, we are entering a new era, one that will feature trusted utility, adoption of traditional financial institutions, and regulatory alignment. And so that's what we want to talk about today. Now, we've got an amazing guest who was very, very generous to uh, give us some time today to talk about her outlook for crypto in 2024. We have Perry Ann Boring on the show. Chris, why don't you give our guests a bio? Perry Ann Boring is the founder and CEO of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, the world's largest trade association representing the blockchain industry. Perry Ann was named one of America's top 50 women in tech by Forbes and one of the 10 most influential people in blockchain by Coindesk. She appears regularly in the financial media to share insights on digital asset and blockchain innovations and public policy discussions. Prior to forming the chamber, Perry Ann served as a television anchor for an international finance program 
that ran in more than 100 countries and reached over 650 million viewers, notably as one of the first dedicated television reporters focused on Bitcoin. She began her career as a legislative analyst in the U.S. House of Representatives, advising on finance, economics, tax, and healthcare policy. And Kurt, with the quotes that you described up front in the news this week, I feel like we're at the top of the first hill on the roller coaster of 2024 <laughs> in the crypto space. And I can't think of someone better to join us on that coaster than Perry Ann. Welcome to Agreed. the Insecurities Podcast. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Chris. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Before we jump into all the fun stuff that you see coming down the road here in 2024, we want to take some time to talk about the unique association that, that you lead, the Chamber of Digital Commerce. What's the mission? Yeah, so I founded the Chamber of Digital Commerce in 2014. So we're the earliest trade association representing the industry. We're fully focused on the digital asset blockchain technology sector, and we're here to help advocate, advance, and, and mainstream this technology. We've been very involved in public policy. So we have a very large footprint on Capitol Hill. We work very closely with regulatory bodies, with the administration. And we've been quite busy the past year. But we had some pretty significant and strategic legal wins throughout 2023. And 2024 is really poised to be a big year for growth. Yeah, no doubt you've been very busy over the, over the last couple of years. You know, I, I was looking at the website preparing for this episode, and one of the things that I noticed is that your, your membership is remarkably diverse. So it includes some crypto industry stalwarts whose names our listeners will know, like Binance, Bitwise, Crypto.com, Dapper, Ripple, and Riot. But there were also a bunch of TradFi or you know, traditional financial services companies in the mix as well, like BNY Mellon, Fidelity, Invesco, Moody's, State Street, Visa, and Wells Fargo. I thought it was really interesting to see that, that mixture of members. And there were also some sort of like retail vendors. I think Overstock is, is among your membership, right? So just a fascinating group. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the membership, who are they? You know, why why did they come to the chamber? Yeah, we represent all companies that are investing, innovating, and developing on blockchain-based technologies. So that includes your crypto natives, those that are fully dedicated to building in the crypto space, but it also includes financial institutions as well as major technology companies and, and, and many others. We very much believe blockchain will be just impactful as the internet itself. It's sometimes referred to as web three. It will really change and have positive benefits, I think, for all industries. We're seeing financial services being the first that it's going to impact. So of course, we're working with a lot of companies in the financial services space, but it certainly won't be limited to that. We see you know, any industry that's involved in data record management are seeing use cases and applications for blockchains and smart contracts, whether that's healthcare, insurance, or others. We think this technology is going to have a tremendous impact on the digital economy. And so our, our membership is broad to represent that. If folks want to learn more about the chamber, the agenda, the things you're working on, who the members are, where can they go to, to learn about the chamber? Yes. Yeah, so our website is digitalchamber.org. And you can see all of our work for the past 10 years on the website as well as who, who our members are. But also recommend following us on Twitter. We're very active on crypto Twitter or, or X now as we call it. Our handle's <laughs> at Digital Chamber. Or you can follow me personally at Perianne DC uh, for Washington DC and uh, follow us in real time on social. 
Awesome. I, I already follow all of those uh, channels, but I highly recommend that the listeners do the same. Okay. We've been kind of teasing this 2024 outlook and we're not there quite yet. So bear with us listeners. <laughs> I, I know you want to tell us about some of the good things on the horizon, but I think we should take a couple minutes just to kind of acknowledge where the industry has been over the last couple couple of years. And I mean, honestly, it's been tough sledding. You know, particularly for some of the developers, the platforms, token issuers, et cetera, that have caught the attention of the SEC. Uh, it's something that Dave Michaels talked about in a recent article for the Wall Street Journal, where he observed that the SEC in 2024 will mark the seventh year of its campaign to regulate cryptocurrencies through enforcement with no end in sight. Regulation by enforcement is something we've talked about a lot more over the last year or so, particularly when it comes to crypto and digital assets. So, I mean, I guess I wonder if you agree, is is there a sort of war on crypto? Is is there any end in sight? What do you think is going to happen? I read that article um, as well in the Wall Street Journal, and I really liked how Dave called crypto uh, the SEC's forever war. Uh, we've really seen, you know, this predates this current administration. It was really, I, I would say, in 2016 when we started seeing the start its regulation through enforcement. And that has had a profound impact on the United States' ability to lead in this technological space. And I think that's uh, very harmful to our technical preeminence. Of course, the wars of today and the wars of the future aren't fought with guns and bullets. They're fought with technology. It's absolutely critical that the U.S. is at the forefront of all advanced technologies. That includes cryptocurrencies as well as AI and and everything in between. It shouldn't be a war on crypto. We should be embracing this technology. And that's been our message at the chamber. But I think this really comes down to kind of two things, politics and more politics. You know, I think that just the natural path of regulatory bodies, particularly when our regulators have moved away from being market experts and more political figureheads, Mm -hmm. you know, the SEC has become more and more and more and more political every year. And that's really been to the detriment of the markets. But Chairman Gensler, but even you know previous chairman from you know Republican administrations, they've wanted to expand the SEC's jurisdiction and power over you know anything they can get into. That also serves for other industries. The SEC also wants to take over the EPA's jurisdiction and energy markets. But when it comes to cryptocurrency, it's really—I mean, you guys have all seen it. It. it I don't know if I would necessarily call it a war, but it's the SEC trying to expand its, its jurisdiction. And there's a lot of benefits to the to the SEC to do that. But this regulation by enforcement has been very harmful to our industry. A lot of companies have left the United States altogether. A lot of entrepreneurs are leaving the United States. And you know, that that's you know obviously you know not good for the future of of our nation. But there's been some pretty significant wins. I kind of alluded to those earlier. The Ripple case was really important to really limit the SEC's jurisdiction, as well as put a wrench in their legal strategy on how they're going to continue to just expand their jurisdiction in this space. But also there's a lot of eyes on Congress. So 2023 was a year of pretty significant policymaking on Capitol Hill. And the Congress will be the one to ultimately set the legal frameworks 
for digital assets. So it's incredibly important that we allow Congress to have the time and the space to be able to do that. And in the meantime, keeping the agencies you know, in check within their jurisdictional boundaries uh, to ensure that we have a legal framework that's going to allow the United States to, to be leaders in advanced technologies like crypto. Yeah, and I think, Perianne, I'm I'm not an attorney, right? I, I've, I've played the accountant on this podcast for a long time. And I think the... <laughs> One of the interesting things I've found over the current, I don't know what, 11 to 29 to 111 episodes we've done on crypto to date with the podcast is, <laughs> you know, you can divide up some of the issues into a lot of different camps. And, and one of the focuses specific to the SEC relates to, you know, the existing regulatory framework and whether or not specific digital assets or blockchain, you know, distributed ledger technologies should be listed as securities and regulated as such or not. There's also other buckets of, of, I'll say, issues around crypto, and, and some of those relate to you know inappropriate or unauthorized or nefarious uses. And we've seen in the past few weeks some discussion around the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act in, in Congress. According to the act sponsors, this legislation is designed to address concerns regarding the alleged misuse of those digital currencies to facilitate illicit activities like money laundering and sanctions evasions and a whole host of kind of those those classic stories of how the uh, pseudo anonymity of, of crypto allows folks to to transact. Uh, you know, the Digital Chamber, your organization and others as well, have referred to this as the, quote, ban crypto bill. Uh, and the Digital Chamber has reportedly launched a petition to halt uh, the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. So tell us about the act and how it's maybe going further than, uh, you know, focused on money laundering issues and, and maybe being that ban on crypto altogether. Yeah, if you're not following this bill, it's the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act, a Senate Bill uh, 2669. Um, if you're not following it, please take a look because there's a lot of, I think, confusion about what it does. I think there's some misinformation about how it works. Um, we'll try to clear that up best we can today. Um, the provision is not a long bill. Uh, it's only a couple of pages. So it only take you maybe three and a half minutes to read the whole thing. Hopefully the members that have sponsored it have done that, but there's questions whether they fully kind of understand how detrimental this would be to the industry. The, the section that I'll draw your attention to would bring parts of the technology into a regulatory framework that is technically unworkable. So according to the bill, unhosted wallet providers or self-hosted wallets, digital asset miners like Bitcoin miners, validators, any other node would all be regulated as financial institutions. That's the key section that just does not work. Obviously, a piece of software like a self-hosted wallet does not have customers and a piece of software cannot function as a financial institution. As you know, if you're regulated as a financial institution, you would have to you'd be subject to anti-money laundering compliance regulations. Digital asset miners, like a Bitcoin miner, they're facilitating and verifying and validating the transactions on the Bitcoin network. They do not have a customer relationship with the people using Bitcoin. They don't even know any of the identifiable information beyond a public key on who's behind these transactions. So requiring a miner to collect and report information that's technically impossible to collect is impossible to do. It's un 
workable. And because of that, it's been called a backdoor ban, even by the Treasury Department in private conversations. This is it's effectively a ban on crypto um, because it would make um, critical pieces of the infrastructure that makes blockchains work impossible to do it in a legally compliant way. It does not take into account how the technology works. And it's this is absolutely a ban on crypto. Uh, I, I think there's been a lot of misleading statements about the bill. We, we released a video just a couple of weeks ago of Senator Roger Marshall. He is the Republican lead co-sponsor of this bill with Senator Elizabeth Warren. He gave a talk at an event a couple of weeks ago where he said this is a light touch uh, fix to the compliance issues related to cryptocurrency. It's not a light touch. A ban cannot be a light touch. So it's really important that the people in the industry and really the legal space and you know any of those who care about the future of you know, technology innovation in the United States really understand what this bill does, what it doesn't do, and you know, calls on Congress to in this this campaign to completely ban crypto. It would be very, very, very harmful <laughs> to <laughs> open source innovation in America. Yeah, it it sounds like this is maybe the latest. Uh, iteration of a of a longstanding uh, debate, for lack of a better word, where it seems like there is, you know, the regulators have a view of the technology or the different technologies and how they might be misused or misapplied. And industry is kind of saying, well, look, that's that's not quite how it works. We either don't do that or we don't have the capacity to do that, or your proposed fix won't work, right? And so whether it is the SEC sort of regulating through enforcement or giving what amounts to very little guidance, right? Asking people to come in and register, uh, or here we've got an actual bill. It, we constantly have this like square peg round hole problem. It, it seems like to me. Setting that aside, I guess I wonder if the legislators' concerns are valid. I mean, here again, it sounds like technologically the proposed fix doesn't fit, but they're worried about things like money laundering and sanctions evasion. So. Are the concerns valid? Is that something they should be worried about? And maybe this isn't the right fix. I don't. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, is law enforcement saying they have a problem tracking and tracing transactions that happen on a blockchain? Where are the mass majority of illicit finance transactions taking place? It's not happening in crypto. I can tell you that. So why is this the focus of hearings, of congressional debate, of legislation? It's, it's not where the problem is at all. To use a conservative number, at least 95%, if not more, of illicit activity, financial activity, is happening outside of the cryptocurrency space. Uh, I mean, you guys know every transaction that, that happens in a, in, you know, using cryptocurrency, it's logged on a public and a transparent ledger called the blockchain. Yep. Law enforcement can track and trace those activities and they have more data about the movement of funds that happen on a blockchain than they do on legacy financial infrastructure. So it really does not make sense to me. It doesn't make logical sense as to why crypto is being painted as the currency for criminals when that is you know, further from the truth. 
law enforcement loves this technology because they're gaining deeper insights into illicit finance than they would, you know, if this technology didn't exist. So I think it's a red herring. And I think there's a lot of political pieces that have, you know, played a big role in the introduction of this bill and this this narrative that Senator Elizabeth Warren that's painting that I believe is misleading and false. Yeah. And just to kind of echo back that point about the usefulness of of blockchain, right? Kurt, you know, we talk often about kind of the financial investigations that you and I get involved with. And I'm shocked at the availability of, you know, preliminary information whenever we receive a tip or, or you know, unfortunately, a, a good friend of mine uh, had a relative who lost about $6,000 in, in a, you know, social engineering scam, right? They, they answered the email, they called the phone number directly, and it was not the company that they thought it was and ended up transferring funds through a, a, a Bitcoin to, to that entity. Uh, you know, usually, right, if we receive a call that's in the $6,000 range, that can be hard to support a specific legal action or even get law enforcement's attention. But being able to piece together some of the publicly available information on the Bitcoin blockchain, we were able to see that that individual action of $6,000 was actually linked to a broader network of transactions that might be interesting to a law enforcement agency and and then made that report, you know, knowing that information uh, afterwards, right? So some of the availability of information out there in the, the crypto space is not just theoretical. You know, you can go to some of the open source tools right now and look up a recent transaction and see how that may connect. Now, we weren't able to identify any actors or, or network or, or kind of how the scam was run, but just knowing that there's more there, there often helps, right, when you're making those referrals and talking through some of those issues prior to getting started on an investigation. Yeah. And I mean, is there, are there crimes where crypto plays a role? There, there is. Is it, it's this, the, the, the currency of choice for criminals? No. I mean, fraud happens in any and every industry. Illicit finance happens across many different industries. We have laws in place that address that. You know, if there is a a crime committed, I mean, just think of like major crimes, whether it, you know, if it's illicit finance, the selling of illicit drugs online, you know, the perpetrator, they're using the internet, they're using computers, they're using the US Postal Service. No one's calling for a ban on the internet, on computers, on the Postal Service, but these were all part of the technologies and the tools that were used. But for some reason, we single out this one technology of blockchain, which is you know why I'm saying I think this is more political than anything else. So it's um, you know fraud happens in every industry. We ha- we have laws to protect against fraud. If you are using crypto or something else, it's still fraud. It's still illegal, and I absolutely support full enforcement of the laws. I think it was really interesting Friday. I don't know if you guys are following this, but Friday night it was announced that. The government was not going to pursue a second trial for Sam Bankman-Fried. This is the largest crypto fraud in the history of the world. And on one side, you have, you know, policymakers like Elizabeth Warren, who's saying, you know, illicit activity is such a big problem in crypto. Well, we have this case (laughs) that's currently going through the judicial system, and they're not enforcing uh, to the full extent of the laws. Why? So I think that also just speaks volumes to the amount of political politics that, you know, 
Bitcoin and crypto have been you know caught up in. And that's why I think it's just so important that things like you know this this crypto ban bill that people actually read it and fully understand how you know how it works and when you read something in the news, don't take things at, at face value. You've got to fact check stuff. There's a lot of misinformation about this technology and it's turned a lot of people off of it. But I think that's changing. And I think 2024 is going to be a historic year for, you know, for the adoption of this technology. Wow, Chris, it's like she wrote the segue for you. I love it. I know, just <laughs> stepped all over it, Perry. And let's get away from the regulation and kind of talk about the why, right? Folks out in the market want to know about, utilize, understand, get involved with digital assets. And obviously, Bitcoin is probably the largest example in terms of volume and, and market knowledge. But you know, other digital assets are, are starting to be a focus of individual businesses, of reporting entities and their investments in those, those assets. And investors just are, are kind of chomping at the bit to receive more information, more access, more availability to participate in this kind of digital asset economy. And one of those things we talked about a little bit earlier, Kurt alluded to, is getting investment exposure to those individual investors through an ETF. The SEC has stubbornly refused to allow a spot Bitcoin ETF to go on a trade on a national securities exchange to date. But last summer, the SEC lost a lawsuit that challenged the commission order that declined to allow a grayscale ETF to trade. So let's talk a bit about this kind of buzzword topic of Bitcoin ETFs. Give us a little bit of the history from the Chamber's perspective and maybe tell us what we're going to see potentially here in 2024. Yeah, I think this is an incredible story of perseverance of Bitcoin and the, the, the innovators building on Bitcoin. Ten years ago, um, the, the Winklevoss twins filed to bring a spot Bitcoin ETF to market. It was denied. For over 10 years, there's been over 16 issuers who have tried to bring a spot Bitcoin ETF to market. All have been denied. In 2022, we felt like we we needed to do more as an as an advocacy association. We studied every single issuer's application and the response from the SEC in terms of what why they were denied. Um, we published a report called the Crypto Conundrum. It's available for free download on our website. But in short, we document exactly you know what had the industry applied for. Why was it denied? What, what was the reason? And then how did the SEC respond to that? Apply again. What was the excuse the next time? And really document, not from an opinion perspective, but just you know, a legal, very factual base, just reporting on you know, what happened. And you can see that the SEC kept moving the goalpost of what, what is required to bring a spot Bitcoin ETF to market. And you can also see that the SEC has been holding Bitcoin to a different standard than other commodity ETFs. And so it was our position at the chamber that the SEC had been acting arbitrary and capricious towards spot Bitcoin ETFs. So we were glad to see that one of these issuers did sue. That was Grayscale. And Grayscale lost that case to the SEC. The SEC was found guilty of arbitrary and capricious behavior. And that is paving the way for a spot Bitcoin ETF. So the law has really been on the industry side. It is concerning that the SEC illegally 
you know, essentially discriminated against this asset class for so long. But I've said for years that a spot Bitcoin ETF is a win, not an if event, because the law is on the industry side. So we are hearing that we will get approvals imminently. It could be as early as this week or next week. We don't know the actual date, but you can kind of read between the lines and the information that is shared with the public. But what we're hearing is that it, it, it will likely be multiple issuers will go to market at the same time, uh, which is what I hope to see, because I think that's probably the most fair way when you have kind of the situation with, with multiple issuers. But the introduction of a spot Bitcoin ETF will be a historic moment because it took so long to get here. It literally took the industry suing the federal government and winning in court to allow this. But also it opens up a very critical pipeline for more investors to have access to Bitcoin, which has been the best performing asset 11 out of the past 14 years. And because of that, we think that we'll put a lot of demand on Bitcoin. We'll start seeing a lot more investors and funds allocate to Bitcoin. And uh, it'll be a great opportunity for for more people to have access to, to Bitcoin in their portfolios. Yeah, certainly. It may, maybe a bit of breaking news here on on insecurities. We'll see if we get news that uh, that a Bitcoin ETF has been approved this week. Maybe, maybe when the episode airs, that would be a fun coincidence. Uh, but time time will tell. I'd love to, Perry, and just put you on the spot quickly, as I like to do with most of our guests, about the main topic of all of our <laughs> conversations. Kurt, you know it as accounting, right? We had a major accounting standards updates from the FASB coming out a few months ago about. Uh, you know, the accounting for digital assets. Can you talk a bit about how the digital chamber supported, uh, you know, a shift in in that accounting and and where you may see that going down the road? Yeah, this accounting issue is actually really important. You wouldn't think accounting could have such- I just want to pause. We're going to cut that. This accounting issue is important, Kurt. We're going to cut that. That's going to be a ringtone. (laughs) Play it on repeat. He's going to play that over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) This accounting issue has been called the number one barrier to the corporate adoption of Bitcoin. So for those who uh, are not familiar, um, digital assets have been treated as indefinite lived intangible assets, which means if you're a company and you put Bitcoin on the balance sheet, you have to... um, well, you first mark it at whatever price you buy it at. But, you know, crypto is volatile. So if the price goes up, you can't mark it up. But if the price goes down, you have to mark it down on your balance sheet. If it goes down again, you have to keep marking it down. So it's very, very punitive to corporations putting digital assets on the balance sheet. Uh, it's not only punitive, it, it also doesn't make the financial statements totally accurate about the value of the assets that a company holds. So we did a very large campaign with the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, to change this rule to allow digital assets to be accounted for at fair market value which is whatever the price the cryptocurrency is trading at in the market at that time. So the FASB announced this rule change in 2023. It doesn't become mandatory until December of 2024, but companies may elect to use fair value accounting today. So we think some of the early movers, companies like MicroStrategy will probably use this right away. But I guess the rest of corporate America who may you know want to use Bitcoin for treasury 
management purposes, kind of following the footsteps of MicroStrategy, probably won't do that until 2025 when this rule, t- rule change becomes mandatory. But the other thing that the FASB did is they put gap accounting standards for digital assets on the technical agenda. So this is all also incredibly important because if you don't have accounting standards, it's very difficult to get a third-party audit. So if you're a company that wants to go public or if you're a public company that wants to be involved in this space, it's kind of a non-starter if you can't get a third-party audit. So having gap accounting standards will be absolutely critical to the mainstreaming of, of cryptocurrency and incredible progress was made with the FASB last year. And all this will be going into effect in 2024 and beyond. Yeah, and just to talk about those dates, right? Implementing the the standards for the 2024 end of this year will roll into the reporting cycle in 2025. And so we may see that, like you said a little bit earlier. But Kurt, I know you remember some of our accounting summer school episodes where we talked about the principles of conservatism, right? That's where that indefinite mm. long-lived asset treatment comes from is, hey, we don't know how this value is going to move, but it would be unfair if it goes from 50 to 100 to write it up to 100 if it's going to drop down to 49 on the next day. Yeah. And so I think that the FASB's position has been that these uh, widely traded cryptocurrency assets, things like Bitcoin, where there's a, a regular, a, there's a known cost in the market can be treated similar to other types of investments where there's a known cost in the market instead of just hoping for the best and, and maybe waiting to write down a material change if it goes down. Fascinating. I know that Perianne has just, you know, gone way up on your list of favorite guests, Chris, because up, she I, got... Really, really deep on the accounting. accounting. Yeah. <laughs> she automatically knew what all of the uh, acronyms stand for. I mean, it's, it's better it. than I could have done. So. I know. I see your cheat sheet it. in the background there, Kurt. So I know you need it. But <laughs> it's funny because there's not a lot. I mean, this isn't an issue that's gotten a ton of attention, but this really is a major impediment to the adoption of, of digital assets. I think it needs to be talked about more. So Chris, I'm really encouraged that it's something that you're working on and that your team's focused on. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. I, I think, um, you know, MicroStrategy was the early adopter. They've been you know very successful in using Bitcoin for treasury management purposes, but we live in a high inflation time in history. Uh, this was in a C- recent CNN poll, the number one issue for American voters today is inflation. So everybody's feeling it. Everybody wants a solution. And people and companies should have the choice to turn to cryptocurrencies um, like Bitcoin and inflation-proof money to protect their purchasing power, to protect their savings. So we're very glad that the accounting rules are now going to allow more companies mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And this was absolutely the right move by the FASB. You know, I guess I'd, I'd like to know what else you're expecting to see in the crypto space in 2024. When we were preparing for the episode, you said you expect it to be a historic year I guess I'm wondering how so. What do you have your eye on? Yeah, I think 2024 is going to be the cardinal year for crypto. As, as we mentioned earlier, I've been in the space for over a decade. I saw 2020, 2013 as the breakout year for Bitcoin. That was the year that it came on the international scene. It kind of went from a little kind of niche, technical, cypherpunk community to making international headlines. Uh, 2024 will be the year that we go mainstream for a number of reasons. Having publicly listed spot crypto products 
will allow for more investors to allocate to the space. That coupled with the Bitcoin halving that will happen in April, where the supply of Bitcoin, the supply of new Bitcoin will be cut in half. Over the last several halvings, this has caused a bull market or been you know, a, a big indicator of a bull market. So I think that's, you know, I think from a price appreciation perspective, it will be a great year. But the other thing that's going to allow for more stream acceptance and use of digital assets is the legal landscape. So, you know, we mentioned Grayscale, that case is bringing about spot Bitcoin ETFs. I touched on the Ripple case, which is a key lawsuit that's really challenging the SEC's legal strategy to how it's trying to bring all digital assets into the securities regime. So that case will continue to be heard into next year or into 2024. But the other set of cases that we're looking at are the cases on the exchanges. So Binance, Coinbase, and Kraken have all are all in litigation with the SEC. A Bloomberg analyst over the weekend wrote an article saying, is Bloomberg's litigation analyst gave the SEC a 30% confidence rating on winning that case. So once the cases with the exchanges you know, go through the legal process, I think that will also bring a lot more clarity to the industry. Um, but also, it's very possible we will get legislation in 2024, particularly around stable coins. We think it's highly likely that could actually pass. Uh, but also looking internationally. So because the U.S. has kind of squandered this opportunity to lead in crypto innovation. Many other nations around the world are really looking to take that leadership role. And they've been working diligently for many years to develop legal landscapes to have a safe and a welcoming jurisdiction for digital asset innovators and investors. A lot of those legal frameworks go into effect in 2024. Um, so these are some of the reasons that we see 2024 as a year where this technology will go mainstream. But at the same time, I think it's also important to recognize, I don't think it's all going to be positive signals. Uh, you know, there is a pendulum and when it swings one way, it always swings back the other. So I do think it's very possible that we will see some other things that happen, that some other political pawns that are played that, that we won't be happy to see. You know, there there's definitely some other tools in Elizabeth Warren's tool chest that she can pull out to further incentivize the government to put its thumb on the scale of innovation. So I'm not totally sure what that pawn is going to be, but I do think you know, in addition to having some very very positive things that will help grow the industry, I, I do think we'll see setbacks as well. But I think that the positives are going to greatly outweigh the negatives. At the end of the day, this is technological progress. It allows for a more efficient use and transfer of assets online, which is critically needed in the digital economy. It's, you know, technology is moving forward. You can only hold it back for so long. So in the long run, incredibly bullish on this technology. But I think 2024 is going to be a pretty, a pretty epic year. I'm calling it the year of like craziness and amazingness. Like I think it's going to get crazy. It's going to be amazing. So be prepared for anything because I think anything could happen. I think that fits well within the forced uh, metaphor of a roller coaster, right? Maybe you're, from your perspective, <laughs> you know, a, a wild ride, hopefully, hopefully for the betterment of, of all. All right. Well, on that positive note, uh, I think we should wrap it up. I want to thank you again for taking some time to come on the Insecurities podcast. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. 
It's great to be here. Thanks, Kurt. And for those of you looking for more information on the Chamber of Digital Commerce, you can go to the website digitalchamber.org or follow Digital Chamber or Perry and DC on the socials. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Perry Ann Boring of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. We always love to hear from you, our listeners. Look for us on social media to share your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.